Well, throughout history, uh, there have been many famous speeches, whether it was Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech or Winston Churchill's Their Finest Hour, uh, Lincoln's Gettysburg Address, or even Ronald Reagan's remarks at the Brandenburg Gate, uh, where he said, General Secretary Gorbachev, if you seek peace, if you seek prosperity for the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe, if you seek liberalization, come here to this gate, Mr. Gorbachev. Open this gate, Mr. Gorbachev. Tear down this wall. Famous speech that you've probably heard parts of at least before. Well, today uh, we're going to be kicking off a series through Matthew chapter 5, which is uh, the first chapter of three chapters known as the Sermon on the Mount, uh, given that name by St. Augustine. Uh, John Stott has said that the Sermon on the Mount, he says this, he says, the Sermon on the Mount is the nearest thing to a manifesto that Jesus ever uttered, for it is his own description of what he wanted his followers to be and to do. Uh, It's the fullest exposition of Jesus that we have in the gospel, and it teaches us what it truly means to be a citizen of Christ's kingdom. Uh, But before we dive into the text itself, uh, I want to say that it's crucial for us to understand the context of the book of Matthew first. Uh, At the very beginning of the book, in Matthew 1, verse 21, it tells us this. It says, she will bear a son, speaking of Mary, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And this is important, for he will save his people from their sins. He, Jesus, will save people from their sins. Matthew wants us to know that from the outset. Uh, Then the the last eight chapters of the book of Matthew all focus on the very last week of Jesus' life and what he did as the Messiah dying in our our place on the cross. So why why do I bring attention to that? Well, because it's our temptation, or at least mine anyway, to read the Sermon on the Mount kind of apart from the gospel, uh, believing that to to be a disciple of Jesus is primarily about what we do and not about what Jesus has done. So hear this loud and clear from the beginning. We are saved not by what we do, but by what Jesus has done. But the Sermon on the Mount is an exposition of what a transformed, saved life is actually looks like after the fact. So think about this. What if, uh, what if you walked in here this morning and I simply wasn't here? Uh, 10 o'clock rolls up. I'm still not here. 10.25, still not here. Then uh, about 10.40, I roll through the door and I say, oh man, I am so sorry, guys. Uh, I was driving down Highway 1 my tire fell off, and so I was changing my tire, I got out to fix it, and I accidentally stepped out on Highway 1, and I got hit by a Mack truck, and it hurt. <laughs> but, but, but I got up, and I finished fixing the tire. Whew. Man, I finally made it here. If, if I told you that story, you'd know that I was either lying or deceived, right? I hope you would. Uh, If someone gets hit by a Mack truck, they look different than they did before. (laughs) 
So, so hear this, loud and clear. If someone truly encounters the God of the universe and experiences the new birth, they're brought out of death and into life, they're going to look really, really different. People who, who profess to be Christians, but whose lives are, are no different than the world, are deceived. If you profess to believe the gospel, but you aren't transformed, I question whether you actually believe the gospel. This Sermon on the Mount is a portrait of what true gospel transformation looks like. This isn't a portrait of cultural Christianity. This comes straight from Jesus. And I want us to understand the context here. In Exodus chapter 19, all the way back in the Old Testament, Moses, he goes up on this mountain and he does that to receive the authoritative word of God. Matthew, here in chapter 5, verse 1, uses the same words. Verse 1, he says, seeing the crowds, he, Jesus, went up on the mountain. The point is this, Jesus is the better Moses. And what he's about to drop on us is the authoritative word of God. He's going to tell us what the transformed Christian heart actually looks like. So before we start, I want us to ask ourselves a couple of questions. First, if, if you could list eight qualities that you want worked out in your own heart, what would they be? What are, are eight qualities that you want to see most developed in your life? I'm going to give you a little bit to think about that and write that down. I want you to, to think about this throughout the next couple of weeks, actually. What are eight qualities that you want to see most developed in your life? What are eight qualities that you want to see most developed in your life? Second, what does it mean for you to be blessed? What does it mean for you to be blessed? Answer that honestly this morning. What does it mean for you to be truly happy and satisfied? What kind of life comes to mind when you think about that word, blessed? What kind of picture do you see that you would post on Instagram with hashtag blessed? Think about that. I want you to keep the answers to those questions in mind the next several weeks and then compare them to what Jesus says here. So with that being said, uh, let's dive into the text. Today, uh, we're going to be meditating on the first five verses, starting in verse 1. Uh, it's on page 809 of your pew Bibles. Matthew 5, verses 1 through 5. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. This is the word of the Lord. I first set out to do verses 1 through 12 today. 
Uh, but as I studied, uh, I realized that whole sermons could be written about all eight uh, of these Beatitudes, and they have been. Uh, today, we're just going to tackle three of them. And so uh, kind of our, our three points today, three points to kind of hang uh, these truths on are this. Point one, Christians are humble and realize their absolute need of God. Second, Christians grieve sin. And third, Christians have a humbly confident trust in God. So before we jump into point one, though, I want you to take another look at verses one through two. It says this, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, So notice here who it is that Jesus is teaching. This is important. Uh, There are crowds of people, but Jesus here is teaching his disciples. Uh, The Beatitudes are for those who are disciples or followers of Christ. These postures of heart that are taught here don't come from simply good ethics or sheer willpower but can only happen through the power of the Holy Spirit. These attitudes from the beginning, I want us to see that they don't come naturally to us apart from Christ. Again, remember that the Sermon on the Mount is a description of someone who's already put their faith in Jesus and received salvation by grace. So he's teaching his disciples. He's teaching Christians here. Well, what's he teaching? Point one, Christians are humble and realize their absolute need of God. Look with me at verse three. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I've already hinted at this a little bit, but this word blessed in this context means this. It means deeply, spiritually, and profoundly happy. Happy in the most full sense of the word, not in the sense that the world around us might be happy. Uh, That happiness is is based on circumstances. This happiness isn't. It's not based on circumstances, as we're going to come to find out. It's a happiness that's rooted in God who never changes. Uh, Also, I want us to notice that the verses 3 and then later on, verse 10, they kind of bookend each other. They both end with, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. While uh, we're not going to get to verse 10 for a couple more weeks, the point is this, that all of these hard attitudes, they describe kingdom citizens, those who have the kingdom of heaven. Further, uh, I want us to note the verb tense here. While uh, other attitudes promise things in the future, verses 3 and 10 are present tense verbs. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In other words, Jesus' promise is that the kingdom will be present for those who are blessed. While some aspects of the kingdom are not yet and won't be fulfilled until Christ returns, other aspects of the kingdom are present here and now. You can have a kingdom life this very moment. Well, how? Well, first, humility and realizing your own bankruptcy and absolute need of God. 
Where do I get that? Well, Jesus says in verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Let's be honest. When we, when we hear that phrase, poor in spirit, don't we tend to think of someone who's just kind of down all the time or maybe even lacks courage? I, I think of a Charlie Brown type character who, who actually lacks confidence and just kind of suffers a lot. But that's not what Jesus is saying here. To be poor in spirit means to acknowledge spiritual bankruptcy. In the Old Testament, to be poor was to be helpless and weak. It was to be unable to defend or save oneself. So over and over and over and over again in the Old Testament, God reminds us that those are the types of people that he cares about. Those who know that they need him. Those who know that they're helpless and weak and unable to save themselves. That's what Jesus is saying here. A kingdom citizen, a Christian, someone who's been hit by the Mack truck of the Holy Spirit and being born again. That person knows that they're nothing without Christ. They know that they're helpless and weak and unable to save themselves. So I hope you see from the beginning that this is not legalism or just a list of rules for us to follow. The very first words out of Jesus' mouth are not about something we do, but about hearts that trust him to be everything for us. True Christians don't come to Jesus thinking, yeah, he got a good deal in me. They know that they're completely undeserving. They know that they bring nothing to the table in salvation. They know that they're saved by grace. They walk humbly before God, knowing that Jesus paid it all. Well, why do you think Jesus starts there? Over the the next three chapters, Jesus is about to list off a number of ways that Christians are called to obedience and to holiness. Our wicked hearts are are so susceptible to take even these beautiful commands that he's about to list and think that they earn God's favor. But Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So Christians are humble and they realize their absolute need of God. So take a minute between you and the Lord right now and just ask yourself, Am I poor in spirit? Or do I come to God with a sense of entitlement? Do I think he owes me anything? Or do I come humbly knowing that he died for me while I was yet a sinner? If there are areas of pride in your heart, take this opportunity to repent Acknowledge your spiritual bankruptcy even in this moment, knowing that in Christ, you're forgiven. That's the beauty of the gospel. When we're weak, he's strong. When we're poor, he's rich. Trust in Christ and his righteousness, not our own. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven.
Point two, Christians grieve sin. Christians grieve sin. Look with me at verse four. He goes on and he says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Again, to understand what Jesus is saying here, we have to go to the Old Testament. In Psalm 119, verse 136, Psalm 119, verse 136, the psalmist says this. He says, my eyes shed streams of tears. Why? Because people do not keep your law. We see this kind of thing all over the Old Testament, whether weeping for corporate or personal sin. There was this righteous response of mourning over sin. In Ezra chapter 10, verse 6, we see Ezra the prophet looking out and mourning over sin. It says, Then Ezra withdrew from before the house of God and went to the chamber of Johanan, the son of Elishab, where he spent the night, neither eating bread nor drinking water, for he was mourning over the faithlessness of the exiles. Memorably, in Psalm 51, which we, we looked at earlier in, in our time of confession, we see David lamenting his own sin against the Lord, mourning over his sin. Then in the New Testament, we see Paul modeling this, this well. Whether he's mourning the sin of others, in Philippians 3.18, he says, For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. So he's mourning the sin of others. Or in Romans 7, 24 through 25, we see him lamenting his own sin. He says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. While Jesus never mourned his own sin because he never committed sin, we do see him weeping over both unbelief and sin in the death of Lazarus. And then again in Luke chapter 19 over the sinfulness of Jerusalem. Christians grieve sin, both their own and the sin of the world. And we know again from Paul in 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10 that godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. This morning that Jesus is talking about here, it's a morning that leads Christians to repentance. It's not just a sorry feeling. It's mourning that leads to a turned heart. Jesus says that, that this kind of person will be blessed. Blessed are those who mourn. So again, I just want us to, to ask the question this morning. When you picture the blessed life, is this what you think of? Someone who mourns sin. Even further, is this the kind of relationship that you have with sin as a Christian? When you sin or when you see sin in others, do you mourn it? Or are you just kind of okay with it? Does it pr produce a, a gut-wrenching response in you? Like mourning a loved one who's passed away. Do you mourn over sin? 
Does it grieve you? Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn. But he doesn't end there, right? He goes on. He says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. So Jesus never leaves us without hope. He promises us that when we mourn sin, that we're going to be comforted. Why will we be comforted? Well, first of all, because of the gospel. That we know that our sin is paid for. We know up front that we're forgiven. And our sins are washed away by the blood of Christ. 1 John 1, 7 through 9 says this. It says, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from unrighteousness. Do you see that? Mourning sin, confession, and cleansing, comfort. This is why we do what we do each and every week as a part of our liturgy. We have a confession of sin and an assurance of pardon each and every Sunday because we need to be constantly reminded of both of these truths. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Second, we're comforted because we know that one day there's going to be an end to sin and death. Tears in heaven is more than just a great Eric Clapton song. Check this out. At the end of time, Revelation 21, 1 through 4, says this. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Here we go. Verse four, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. So Christians grieve sin both in ourselves and in the world. But we have full confidence that we will be comforted. That's the type of life that's happy in its fullest sense. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. So Christians are humble, and they realize their absolute need of God. Second, Christians grieve sin. And third, Christians have a humbly confident trust in God. Christians have a humbly confident trust in God. Look with me at verse 5. He says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. This word translated meek can also be translated gentle or even humble. As with the first two Beatitudes, let's just stop and acknowledge here that this isn't exactly what the world around us praises or sees as valuable and blessed. No. Quite the contrary. We don't often think that gentle and humble people are going to get ahead in life, right? 
But Jesus tells us that this kind of heart posture will be blessed. On the other hand, Jesus is not describing the the kind of wallflower image that you might have in your head. He's describing someone who humbly and gently and kindly lives with full trust in God and patience with others. I want to draw our, our attention to Psalm 37. Because that's what Jesus is quoting here in his sermon. Psalm 37, verses 1 through 11. He says, Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers. For they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourselves over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries, uh, carries out evil deeds. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. So uh, I know that's a long text, but I want you to look at the parallel between verses 9 and 11. In in verse 9, it says, those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. And then again in verse 11, it says, the meek shall inherit the land. This is part of meekness. It's actually waiting on the Lord. Throughout this psalm, waiting on the Lord means trusting in him, not getting angry, not fretting over those who prosper, but committing your way to the Lord. A meek person isn't phased much because they know that God is sovereign and that God is just and that God is good. Look at how this plays out in Moses' life. In Numbers chapter 12, Moses experiences a ton of opposition from these two people, Miriam and Aaron. And in Numbers 12 verse 3, it tells us that now the man Moses was very meek more than all the people who were on the face of the earth. Uh, The chapter goes on to tell us that God actually vindicated Moses and rebuked Miriam uh, Miriam and Aaron. So meekness means trusting your cause to God and not needing to defend yourself. I've just got to be honest here. This one's hard. Anytime I'm wronged or, or opposed... My inner defense lawyer goes into overdrive. I want to defend myself or act out in anger in some way. In those moments, my sinful heart is not trusting in God. I think I can defend myself better than he can. I think I can control things better than the creator of the universe. Do you see how ridiculous that is? This kind of heart posture is not natural for us. 
It's only something that can be produced by the Holy Spirit in us. Meekness frees us from defensiveness and places our trust in God. One more. Uh, Look with me at James 1, verses 19 through 21. James 1, 19 through 21. He says, Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. So do you see the contrast here? James imagines one person who's quick to speak, quick to anger. This person doesn't like to listen, but loves to speak. This person gets angry if they're questioned. On the other hand, James commends this person who listens well, who is slow to anger. He receives the word of God with meekness. He's considerate and he's teachable. James goes on to call that wisdom. James 3.13, he says, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. Four verses later, James says this. He says, But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable and gentle. That's that, that word meek. Open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. So meekness is humble, teachable wisdom that's from God. Trusting God. That's the heart posture of a Christian. Is that true of you? Husbands and wives, if if you've been wronged by your spouse, do you respond in meekness? If you're in the business world, Maybe you've been taken advantage of or mocked because you live as a Christian. Do you trust God? Or do you try to handle it yourself? Jesus says, blessed are the meek. And look at the promise that's connected with it. For they shall inherit the earth. This is a reference to God's covenant with Abraham all the way back in Genesis. And this promise of land that's flowing with milk and honey. But even more, we know that that points forward to the new heaven and the new earth that we read about earlier in Revelation 21. This is how the kingdom of God works over and over and over and over again. Fight and claw and seek your own agenda and success. Never find it. Be gentle. Trust God. Inherit the earth. Again, we know that this happens through Christ. In him, all the promises of God are fulfilled. So what do you think of when you think of a deeply happy life? What do you think of when you hear the word blessed? Poor in spirit? Mourning over sin? Meek? That's what Jesus says. I want us to close this morning with a couple minutes of silence and reflection. I want you to search your hearts this morning. 
If you call yourself a Christian, does this describe you? And if not, why? If you truly have turned from sin and trusted in Christ, and you'd look at this and you'd say, my heart's not like that. I want you to take this moment and repent. Ask God to produce this kind of heart in you again. Or maybe you're here today and you've never experienced having a heart posture like this. I want to invite you right now to turn from sin and trust in Christ. You can have your sins forgiven at this very moment. Because Jesus came to this earth and lived a perfect life in your place. And then went to the cross to pay for your sin. You can be born again by repenting by turning and believing in him. Mourn your sin. Acknowledge your spiritual bankruptcy before God and trust him completely and fully. That's the life that Jesus calls truly blessed. So we're going to take the next several moments just in silence and reflection to consider what God's saying to each of our hearts. Let's pray.